0: Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the director of content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by Janus Henderson Investors. As such, the sponsor can make suggestions for topics, but final control over the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Thomas Hogor, who is Portfolio Manager for Emerging Market Debt for Janus Henderson. Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Walter. So we're going to talk today about emerging market debt, but perhaps you can tell me a little bit about how you got started in investing.
1: It's been a relatively long journey. Uh, I would say initially it started off with an academic interest in emerging markets more generally. I studied during the late 1990s, and and back then, you know, focus in economics was really uh, on financial crisis. Uh, You saw the Asian uh, financial crisis. It was mainly an EM uh, uh, thing at the time. But I also realized that, you know, emerging markets uh, has a huge potential, many challenges. And it's very interesting from an economic point of view, how, you know, different policy decisions can influence in such a big way uh, how a country uh, performs. So it was initially an academic interest. Uh, Then I had a short internship at Goldman Sachs between my bachelor's degree and my master's degree. And I was so fortunate to work in the uh, research department alongside some good economists, Jens-Jakob Novi and Eric Nilsson. And that really piqued my interest in looking at investments in, in in em uh, I actually shared an apartment with one of the co-authors of Dreaming with Bricks Really that was a big piece that uh, that uh, Goldman Sachs put out you know trying to predict where Brazil Russia India and China would, would be in in 30 odd years or so and that added to, to that interest so uh, when I was done studying I moved to sell side focusing on China and bigger EMs but that was mainly bottom up fundamental research and then finally, good uh, ten years ago, uh, an opportunity arose to to move to the buy side at uh, a different asset manager than when where I am now, uh, and uh, to design and define an investment process investing in EMD hard currency, and that was my transition to to investing in EM.
0: Yes. Yes. So you mentioned uh, that that sort of academic interest. Um, does that sort of have to do as well with the fact that, that emerging markets um, is a lot more driven by you know, geopolitical events, much more macro events uh, than perhaps some of the more developed markets?
1: It is definitely driven by the fact that there's a huge potential and the right policies can really uh, release that potential. And when... I was studying when you looked at developed markets. You know, people were talking about. Then you have this economic indicator coming out, and it's either plus minus 0.1 relative to expectations. It was not really, you know, the big moving things in 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 economics. But when you looked at emerging markets, that is really where you've seen some of the you know interesting stories uh, from an economist point of view. That's where you have many different ways of of a defining economic policy, it's where you have a, you know, a very diverse group of countries, from commodity importers to exporters, and where you're seeing a lot of growth potential. And that's really, I think, from an economist point of view, where uh, you find most of the interesting cases, uh, for me at least, that was the case.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is quite a, a diverse market. Um uh, because to a degree, you know, emerging market, it it, it creates sort of this sense of uh, a union, but it's basically a whole collection of different types of regions and markets. Can you tell me a little bit about what some of these common drivers are behind the market?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I actually don't really appreciate the whole EM term. I, I think, you know, labeling and, and, and putting countries into buckets is is very complicated. All countries are you know developing emerging how how however you put it uh and and em is definitely a very diverse group of countries because you basically span uh from the very poor countries in sub-saharan africa that are very dependent on commodity prices all the way to more innovative middle high middle income uh, countries so it's it's definitely a very diverse set of countries and that's also why you, you have many different drivers of investments in each and every country but what you're kind of asking is you know what are the overall drivers of the asset class so if you look at the asset class that that we are investing in which is entirely emd hard currency so we only invest in us dollar or euro denominated bonds coming out of of, of emerging markets uh, an investment universe of, of close to to 80 countries so if you look at the overall drivers uh, of the asset class it is it is uh, worth you know just taking a, a step back and, and looking at where the return comes from when you invest in these bonds so the total return from the bonds comes from a, a carry component and a potential capital gains uh, or losses uh, component due to the changes in the risk premium that you get on em hard currency bonds and that is the premium you get on top of of the underlying interest rate which is US uh, treasury yields. So there's a carry component and an interest rate change component. And each has an EM component to it and a developed market component. Uh, So it is a spread product. So you get compensation for not being invested in, in US treasury yields that is related to EM specific risks. So if nothing changes, you get that carry. Let's say that carry is around Uh, 7%. So if nothing changes in the world, that's what you get. You get a a, a significant pickup uh, uh, investing in EMD hard currency from that perspective. So clearly, a stable environment is is, is good for EM. But that also means that you have two return drivers. You have an underlying US Treasury yield driver. So anything that influences US Treasury yields, and we've seen some big moves uh, in the recent years, inflation being one of them, you know, the the overall economic cycle of the U.S. Uh, definitely also influencing underlying U.S. Treasury yields, but also general market sentiment. You know, U.S. is the, the safe uh, haven asset. So, you know, when market uh, becomes more negative, you typically see moves in, in the safer assets like the underlying U.S. Treasury yields. But then you have the EM risk premium. The EM risk premium has historically been between 300 and 700 basis points on top of U.S. Treasury yields. And of course, the EM risk premium can be influenced in, in different ways. So if, if we start up with the, the global macro level, if you look at the overall asset class as such, it is a categorized as, an, as a risky asset class, which basically means that it is kind of hostage to the whims of the global marketplace. And that means that, you know, historically, if you look at how this risk premium has evolved in EM, uh, it uh, has been impacted oftentimes by developed market events. So, of course, the global financial crisis hit all assets. You had the the European debt crisis. You had a hard landing concerns of China in in 14, 15. You've had geopolitical risks. Many of these things that are moving the EM risk premium are not necessarily fundamentally impacting EM but it introduces uncertainty in the overall global marketplace and that influences this perception of risk in EM given that it's a risky asset class. So if you think about the best environment for EMD hard currency that is really one where you know fundamentals are improving that is often very strongly related to to global growth so relatively strong global growth or improving global growth. But on the flip side, you don't want growth to be too strong in certain places, because that would mean that financial conditions could tighten. And that especially is related to the U.S. So in many ways, when you think about the best environment for EMD hard currency, it's an environment where global growth is relatively strong. the U.S side of things is not too strong because that would have meant that the Fed would be tightening financial conditions. And it's that balancing act, the balancing act between fundamentals and financial conditions is really what is key to understand uh, the asset class. So relative growth dynamics are key uh, in terms of you know trying to figure out how this asset class is, is going to do. It is very much a balancing act between the US and the rest of the world. A good indication of, of the sensitivity of EM to global growth is also that if, if you look at e, uh, MB spreads, so the, the preferred benchmark in our asset class is, is JP Morgan's MB global diversified and MB spreads tend to narrow when commodity prices go up. And, and, you know, the typical investor would say, and that's because, you know, EM is very commodity dependent. But if you if you decompose uh, this country universe of 80 countries, you realize that more than half of those countries are, in fact, commodity importers. So why is it then that MB spreads almost always tighten when commodity prices are going up? And and uh, we believe that that is, is very clearly because commodity prices are correlated with global growth cycles. And you also find a correlation to the U.S. dollar. You typically tend to to hear that you know when the when the dollar strengthens that's a problem for em and definitely in some em countries a, a dollar strengthening means that you know credit fundamentals deteriorate because ultimately if you have dollar debt and the dollar strengthens then your debt in dollars will will increase relative to the size of your economy but it is also more reflecting if you look at the overall asset class where By far, most countries are more reliant on on local debt markets, which is not sensitive to to the U.S. dollar uh, directly. The U.S. dollar really reflects the balance between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And it goes back to these global growth uh, dynamics and the relative global growth picture of the rest of the world versus the U.S., and the dollar kind of reflects that because you do see spreads typically go up when the dollar is strengthening on a more trend-like basis.
0: So so what does that mean for the current environment? Because you sketch sort of that risk uh, exposure to uh, both the US where you want growth to be strong, but not too strong, so that it doesn't tighten. There's the dynamics of financial events happening in the developed world. And then, of course, there's also the local uh, um circumstances and market environment that plays out um, if we look at today's environment where we just had a, a ramp up in interest rates i think we're now at a point where people uh, think that we we will definitely pause um, if, um but at least not see a, a, a big rate rise again in uh, in the coming years what is sort of the the effect for emerging market debt?
1: so we've definitely had a couple of challenging years for emerging market debt and risky assets in general, because inflation is kind of, and I didn't mention that uh, previously, but inflation is kind of the wedge that is killed in between fundamentals and financial conditions. So, uh, you know, our asset class, uh, uh, the environment you have when inflation is going up sig- uh, significantly means that you will have financial conditions tightening without this corresponding fundamental improvement. And that is something that is very challenging uh, uh, for for EM uh, in particular. And also, in addition to that, uh, the way that inflation jumped after, especially, you know, really uh, jumped after Russia went into Ukraine, a uh, was particularly damaging because it also created a sense of the Fed being behind the curve and then a lot of uncertainty about how the Fed would then catch up and very aggressive tightening. So, you know, uncertainty is, is, is the worst for, for a risky asset class uh, like ours. And on top of that, uh, you know, volatility is, is also uh, quite challenging. And that was what that shock caused. And now, where are we now? Inflation is is coming down. You know, there's been significant disinflation and there are signs that that process is continuing. Uh, we're getting close to the end of Fed tightening. Uh, it, you know, some people are, are concerned that inflation might not really come down all the way, but at least it seems that we are close to the end uh, tightening side of the Fed. And Typically, when the Fed stops tightening, the following couple of years have, in historical terms, uh, delivered quite good total returns out of EM. Uh, Because, as you say, the underlying Treasury yield is is not going up. uh, And if the Fed has managed to navigate the U.S. economy into a reasonably soft landing, that is the environment that you like. You don't have uh, Fed tightening. You have the U.S. economy not growing too fast. That is typically environment that is very constructive for EM. But it does depend on that question of did the Fed manage to uh, land the U.S. economy in a soft way. If If that is not the case, if the Fed has tightened very quickly and we are still seeing the you know the uh, uh, some of the consequences of that previous tightening and you will end up with a bigger slowdown in the us, then of course, if you have a recession in the US that creates additional uncertainty, that is something that the asset class would not be uh, 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 performing too well in.
0: So there's a lot of different factors that come into play. Um, but there's of course always also the local story. And I understand that you, you spent quite a bit of your time traveling and, and visiting the individual countries to to basically get a sense of the, the local environment. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
1: We try to visit around 25, 30 countries every year. We are two dedicated economists looking at this investment universe and uh, uh, we believe that it is, is, is critical to be on ground and, and to meet a broad set of, of stakeholders, uh, different experts, policymakers, politicians, uh, think tanks ratings agencies the imf uh, residential reps etc uh, to get a a a, a full and, and deep dive uh, picture of of, of different e- economies so and and of course that means we've had quite a lot of interesting encounters in em over the last 10 years where we've been doing this and i, I like to 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 think about some of my early trips to venezuela just, just as a disclaimer, Venezuela is not in our asset class anymore. But in 13, 14 and 15, I went to Caracas many times. So you could say one of my experiences in, in EM, if you take some of the one of the worst cases, was really driving around in, in Caracas, seeing trucks full of, of electronics, televisions, etc., and military personnel because the state confiscated goods due to the perception that you know prices were set too high, so they simply looted the, the stores all the way to seeing some of the most enthusiastic kind of audience when a more market-friendly government won in 2015 in Argentina. I was in the Inter-American Development Bank building in Washington with probably a couple of hundreds of investors. Eagerly awaiting the newly elected economic team in Argentina to present their plan, with hopes of a new beginning, we're kind of seeing that again now with with elections coming up and and hopes of a of a new beginning. I think I think people will be you know a little less uh, you know enthusiastic or at least more critical this time around, but. These are some of the examples in, in EM, uh, and, and visiting EM is 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 really uh, key uh, to understand uh, you know what's going on, uh, especially on the political side.
0: And and some of the more recent trips, uh, where have you been lately?
1: So some of the more recent trips uh, have. Been to to Asia. We've uh, done a round trip in in some of the the Asian economies like Indonesia. It's been one of the good reform stories. They have an election coming up next year, so that's one that we follow, uh, you know, particularly closely. Uh, Philippines and, and Malaysia, some of the the low yielding names that that you know uh, we also follow because there's a lot of political change uh, going on and potentially a reform story in 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 the Philippines. Uh, I recently went to uh, West Africa, visiting Benin, Senegal and Ivory Coast. These are some of the very interesting uh, countries that uh, we've been investing in for, for for many years because they are high growth economies. They now have IMF programs, which means that, you know, policies are changing for the better. Hopefully that's uh, because, uh, you know, the IMF comes with money, but it also comes with uh, conditionalities on, you know, how to ensure that a country has market access, relatively good uh, uh, policies is required to to have that.
0: Comes with a price.
1: Yeah, no, no. So, uh, and before that, I actually visited Turkey, which is also one of the very interesting names these days because there were very high hopes of regime change again. You know, Erdogan uh, losing the presidency and perhaps even the, you know, parliamentary majority. That didn't happen. But then he made many of the, you know, policy 180 pivots that people were hoping the opposition would do. And now we're trying to figure out, you know, is Erdogan, you know, genuine about his uh, return to more orthodox policies, etc. So those are some of the some of the names that we've visited recently. And I have a a trip uh, pending to Colombia and Ecuador. Also, you know, I mean, it's very difficult to to mention an EM country without, you know, anything Really interesting, taking place. So uh, it, it's a it's a big world out there, and and we are thrilled to be uh, be part of it.
0: You've been traveling for for uh, I think uh, you said almost uh, a decade or or more than that. Um, and I think over the time you've seen a little bit more dispersion between the different countries in terms of uh, the performance as well. Can you explain a little bit why that is the case?
1: Yes. So in in terms of of dispersion. I I agree completely uh, with you. Uh, Today, there seems to be historically high dispersion. When you look at the risk premium you're paid in individual countries, if you just take the dispersion of all these spreads for all these countries, it's historically high. If you even look at the dispersion of, of ratings, which is a measure kind of the credit risk related to a country, that dispersion has also uh, gone up quite significantly. And you can even say there are clear signs of some kind of bifurcation in the sense that you have uh, a group of countries now bigger than in the past that is facing more challenges and is more distressed than we've seen. That group is bigger. And then you have uh, some countries in the investment grade level that are very strong. Uh, some of the Middle Eastern countries have generally benefited quite significantly from the rising commodity prices in recent years. So you have some much stronger credits, and you have some much weaker uh, credit, credits. But I think, in terms of your 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 general comment about a, a dispersion, we have to remember we've basically had three years of unprecedented shocks, and those shocks are still, uh, you know. F- haven't played out fully yet. COVID was the first shock, right? You had COVID hitting different economies in different ways, you know, depending on demographics, depending on each and every country's adaptive capability, depending on what was the health policy response that was, you know, varied quite significantly in EM and DM. And different economic and financial responses as well. Some countries kicked in with big fiscal stimulus. Some countries did not. And of course, that initial shock has taken quite a while to, to feed through. And we are still seeing some of the consequences of that because there's a fiscal bill to be paid and some fiscal consolidation needed to, to get back you know, to, to where things were before COVID. On top of that, you then had the inflation shock. Part of that inflation shock came from COVID so because you basically moved demand from from you know the service sector to 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 goods sector and that created a, a you know a, a dislocation uh, but then you had russia ukraine the shock that hit food prices commodity prices and that additional shock really sped up inflation quite significantly but when you think about em and generally globally You have a lot of commodity importers versus exporters. They are hit very differently by these shocks. You have poor versus rich countries. They are hit very differently from these shocks because, you know, when food prices go up, poor countries hurt, you know, asymmetrically compared to to rich countries. Social responses have been very different. So we're still coming out of these shocks. China is probably the best example of how, you know, Decoupled or desynced, the global economy has has become because they had a very uh, unique uh, COVID uh, policy. You could say that they only, uh, you know, loosened uh, at the end of last year. So desynchronization globally is very high, and and what we believe that really means in terms of investing is that it calls for a lot of diversification. You want to be diversified across all of these different types. of of economic structures, economic policy responses, as the economy is transitioning to something that is hopefully a bit more stable. Uh, so at least from our perspective, diversification has been even more valuable uh, than in the past.
0: Well, with such a diverse group of countries, um, how do you approach uh, sovereign credit risk? How do you assess that?
1: Yes, that, that's an exceptionally complicated question in the sense that you know, how, how, how do you perform your sovereign credit risk analysis? It goes to the very core of your investment process. Uh, so I'll, I'll try to to make it as as brief and intuitive as, as, as possible. First of all, we apply a combination of a quantitative analysis and a qualitative analysis. And, and the way we do it is really that we've looked into Uh, ratings movements in the past 20 plus years across the entire investment universe of of, of EM. And we've looked into how the market behaves in these different types of ratings uh, environments where you have upgrades or downgrades or or neutrals. Because we are very aware of the value of empirical analysis. So what we we, uh, found was that There is a very systematic relationship between how the market is trading a country's sovereign credit risk and its rating. But the the relationship is, of course, the dynamics of the relationship is that the market is forward-looking. The market is looking one and a half, two years out. That's at least what we have kind of quantified, which means that you need to form an opinion about where uh, credit quality is going in the next one and a half, two years. And what that convinced us to do was really to build a quantitative framework that tries to uh, use the information embedded in ratings. You have variations in ratings within a country over a 20-year period, and you have variations at a given point in time between countries. So we built some statistical models that try to explain that variation in ratings to use that as a... A platform to fundamentally understand what drives sovereign credit risk, and then we try to predict where they are, are going. That's the pure quantitative part. That's our platform. That's our starting point to understand sovereign credit risk. But of course, you cannot quantify everything in in a, in a model because there are many decisions made by policymakers, in particular, that will influence sovereign credit risk in the next one and a half two years. We also They find a qualitative adjustment to try to capture some of these things, and that is really about, and that relates very much to many of our country trips, relates to try to identify what set of policies, and it is typically economic policies, but in a broader way, what set of policies are going to influence sovereign credit risk in the next one and a half, two years. And what is the likelihood of those policies being implemented? It can be a fiscal reform that is key to understand sovereign risk. And then how impactful is it going to be? And that is, you know, that is on my desk to try to quantify that into a ratings impact to then form an opinion about what is sovereign credit ratings going to be for each and every country in the next one and a half, uh, two years. So, that is, that is basically, you know, in, intuitively what it is that we're trying to do. So a, a relatively data-driven process, but with a qualitative overlay to capture some of the things that you cannot find in, in the data.
0: Yeah, yeah. And of course, emerging markets are also uh, part of this story of very long-term growth. Um, uh, it's partly uh, a demographic story as well where you know, um, you've got a relatively young population, then you get elements also coming into play, such as innovation. We've seen the rise of the tech companies in China. And then, of course, also some more larger structural uh, developments, such as climate change, but also inequality. So how do you capture all of those different type of, you know, structural drivers um, in, in one process?
1: Yeah that is of course immensely complicated and and you know you you have to make some decisions about what is the relevant and meaningful impact of many of these more slow moving structural factors because there's there's no doubt that Uh, You know, they don't influence the day to day or month to month or even year to year variation in in ratings. That is clear. We've I mean, we've tested that statistically. Uh, So that is not the case. But you also know that, you know, if you take two countries, put them next to each other and you need to invest in one of them, if they are completely identical, but if you know that one country has better demographics than the other country you know you know there's a, a young workforce uh, coming in which means basically that you know the sovereign hopefully will be able to tax some of the income coming from that to, to finance a, a smaller a, a, you know elderly population then you, you pick the country with the, with the best demographics the similar goes to to age, age dependency which is of course a little bit more specific to the sovereign because it, it says something about the people that are not working, which typically is a, a sovereign responsibility to kind of help them out social, socially in, in terms of pensions or, 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 or education. But, but in terms of age dependency, that is also very clear. You know, you, you want to have a large working population. So, uh, and, and again, uh, inequality, it's a bit more tricky. But for us, inequality is something we really try to capture in the qualitative overlay of our assessment of sovereign credit risk, because inequality has a meaningful impact, we believe, on the policy space available for policymakers, because high inequality typically means that you have less fiscal, uh, less policy space because of social tensions, Chile in 2019 was a good example, right? Where you had huge protests. People realized how you know uh, an equal, how a high inequality is in, in in Chile, despite Chile being one of the highest-rated, you know, highest income per capita countries. That kind of put inequality really firmly on the map in terms of what policymakers can do, uh, because we're often looking for you know fiscal consolidation. But fiscal consolidation today is not the same as five years ago or before COVID, because fiscal consolidation has a social angle now that is much much more pronounced than was uh, was in the past. And you asked, you know, how do you then capture many of these slow-moving factors? Well, uh, there is no, uh, you know, uh, perfect way to catch it. But what we do in in our qualitative overlay is we include data points for all of these more slow-moving, structurally relevant, you know, that we consider relevant for the long-term story of EM. Of and then we uh, standardize them. So we compare countries to each other and we reward the countries that are better than the other countries. Uh, so it influences our rating, but in a in small way, because it is really a long-term structural story. You mentioned climate change as well. I think it's it's worth you know mentioning a couple of things here. I mean, if you if you think about climate change vulnerability, you you quickly realize that you know rising temperatures, rising seawater level, volatile weather phenomena like floods and droughts, etc., they are really impacting a lot of EM countries. And, and geographically, EM is probably more on the receiving side, unfortunately, from from climate change, and, and some people would 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 argue that, uh, including myself, that EM is is not really the is the the main reason why we are having all these climate uh, issues. A large part of that is to be blamed on developed markets. So there is a an unfortunate situation here where uh, EM is really struggling with climate change, and it is something that. We take into account, we, we look at different uh, climate change vulnerability scores and, and and include that in our assessments of credit risks. But it, this is more on a country by country case, uh, I would say. And it is dependent on, you know, the structure of the economy. If you are a large diversified economy, it means less than if you are a small agriculturally, agricultural producer.
0: Now, I think you're right about that, about the EM's part in, in, in climate change, because I think that's probably the reason why we compare it to pre-industrial times, right? That yes. <laughs> a large part comes from the industrial revolution uh, where all this came about. Exactly. Now, you, you, you mentioned uh, when, uh, when we talked a little bit about your travels, uh, you, you gave the example of Venezuela and then said as well that this is no longer in, in our portfolio. But if we look at sort of the universe of EM, that changes quite a, a bit as well. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, a sense of how much turnover there is and and how you deal with that?
1: Yeah. So the investment universe I mentioned was around eighty countries. So that's the entire investment universe. But if you if you just think about the the benchmark approach to 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 EM, uh, so as I mentioned, our preferred. Benchmark is JP Morgan, MB Global Diversified. And hard currency space is a very benchmarked uh, universe. We have close to 70 out of those 80 countries in the benchmark. Uh, so uh, in terms of that benchmark, that has been steadily growing uh, over the past uh, you know, 20 years. When we started in 2013, we had around 58 countries in that benchmark. And that number peaked at 73 after we had an addition of uh, the GCC. So some of the the Gulf countries in the Middle East were included in in 2018 and and 2019. And we had uh, some frontier names coming in because you have to remember hard currency is the entry point for EM countries because they, some of the frontier countries they lack the institutional credibility they lack perhaps uh, you know an independent central bank so it is really not possible for them to borrow in their own currency. They have to borrow a bit of credibility from the US and issue in dollars or in, in euros uh, and that means that the flow that you're seeing coming into the asset class is typically frontier names relatively, uh, poor economies coming in I think around 20 25 percent is classified as frontier names uh, but since then we've we've had you know for the last 10 years only seven countries exiting so you can't really talk about you know graduation because countries tend to continue to issue hard currency even as they develop but of course many of the countries in our benchmark they are now issuing much more in local currency local currency is like eight 10 times the market cap of hard currency. So the success story is not only that you know countries exit the hard currency space and they have their own credibility so they can issue locally because typically they tend to continue to issue hard currency uh, also to set you know the stage for their corporates etc to issue externally but they develop local markets. And some of the cases where we've had countries accessing our benchmark is because they developed uh, local markets or they stopped issuing in dollars. The benchmark only includes uh, dollars and issuing in, in euros. An example of that is three Eurozone members, Croatia, Slovakia and Lithuania were part of the benchmark, but they are, uh, are now, uh, uh, you know, out of the benchmark because they stopped issuing dollar debt. Uh, and then uh, uh, basically, Countries have exited because of, of sanctions. Uh, Russia and Belarus were excluded last year. That is an example of that. So it, there's not a lot of turnover. It's it's pretty stable uh, as a class, but it is gradually expanding. And and from our perspective, we now have 70 countries instead of 58. Fair
0: enough. Now you you mentioned a couple of times you, you focus only on hard currency. Well, this, this is a, a risky asset class. Is, is your focus on the hard currency uh, mainly to mitigate some of those risks to smooth a little bit of that volatility? Or are there other are reasons to to focus on on just hard currency?
1: We are firm believers in, in specialization. And especially when it comes to uh, emerging markets, we have an investment universe of 80 countries. We are five people now covering it. We used to be four uh, when... You know, we defined the investment process and two of those, including myself, are on the country research side. So that is, that's quite a lot of countries. And what we really found was that in hard currency, there is a component of the risk premium that you can model and you can try to understand and predict that makes, you know, a, a sense from an investment perspective. There is a credit anchor that is fundamentally driven. And that's why we believe that focusing on hard currency, focusing on building that expertise and trying to figure out what is a fair risk premium at the country level uh, made sense. If you look at local currency, it's a very different animal. Uh, it's, It's a locally driven interest rate curve depending on inflation and central banks. It requires a more frequent monitoring of what's going on in each and every country. Uh, in addition to that, you have the FX component being a very important driver of returns, and the FX component, in in you know, in, in our belief, is less anchored by fundamentals, more difficult to predict. Uh, so, from our perspective, you know, a hard currency is you know analytically a, 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 a an asset class that we were more comfortable handling, and we felt that we had the necessary expertise uh, to deliver alpha in that asset class. Uh, so we've never had have had appetite to cross over into anything else. We believe that if, if you found a good recipe, you should not uh, change it.
0: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Perhaps we can finish up with looking at a, a few opportunities. Um, are there any countries or, or bonds uh, that are your favorites?
1: Some of the, the long-term Interesting stories that we've been investing in, and we continue to be invested in, are some of the reform stories you could call them. Uzbekistan is, is one of those interesting cases. Most people don't think about uh, Uzbekistan at all. Uh, it has the last uh, name that is, you know, people tend to be a little bit cautious when when it ends with the stan. But it is one of the you know biggest uh, reform stories in EM at the moment. It's basically a, a zero to hero kind of story from an autarkic dictatorship a few years ago to what resembles more a transition economy, adopting more market-friendly reforms, uh, liberalizing you know, the state. And it, it's a, it's, at the same time, it's also a relatively lowly indebted country, country with, with large external buffers. Uh, it has quite a lot of reserves. And it's a major exporter of uh, gas, copper, and gold, and many of the things that the world is is, is demanding. Uh, so Uzbekistan is definitely one of the the interesting uh, cases uh, that we are looking at. You could also argue that the pressure that we've seen in financial markets have pushed a lot of the frontier names into, uh, you know, more distressed, or spreads have gone up quite uh, significantly. And that leaves some opportunities in, in sub-Saharan Africa where uh, you are now seeing IMF programs basically sealed in every single country. And that introduces some assurance of the kind of policies that are coming out of, of, of some of these, uh, these countries. And at the same time, we like countries that are you know growing quickly because when you grow quickly, when you have high growth, it's much easier to consolidate fiscals than if you don't have any growth and it would be very painful. So we like a country like Benin in, in West Africa. We also think that you have some good stories in the rest of West Africa, but in Ivory Coast and, and Senegal, you have some elections uh, coming up that, that could complicate uh, things. We've been long-term investors in Mongolia, and that has been a really interesting story. Again, uh, in the backyard of of China with lots of of commodities at at very low cost extraction, and again, with reasonable good policies and and good relationships with uh, multilaterals like the IMF. So that is also a a country that we've liked for, I think, the better part of five, seven years uh, now. But those are some of the the interesting uh, stories uh, that we are we are following closely these days.
0: Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Uzbekistan. I, I did not think of that uh, <laughs> that would come up, but uh, we'll keep an eye on it. Well, Thomas, thank you very much for your time. It was great having you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for all the good questions. Thank you for listening to the I3 podcast. For more information, please visit www. Dot i three dash invest.com Thank you very much